Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Today on CardioScripts, my guest is Dr. Michael Plazik, who is a critical care and cardiology clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. His expertise includes advanced heart failure, as well as temporary and durable mechanical circulatory support. He joins me today to discuss the Do-Re-Mi trial, which is a comparison of dobutamine with milrinone among patients in cardiogenic shock. Welcome, Dr. Plazik. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. Before we dive into our discussion, I'm going to provide our audience with an overview of the Do-Re-Mi trial. This was a single-centered study out of the University of Ottawa. It was a prospective, randomized, double-blinded evaluation of dobutamine, or milrinone, in patients with cardiogenic shock. Included patients were 18 years or older, had been admitted to an ICU, and had shock as defined by the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, or SCAI, as stage B, C, D, or E. The key exclusion criteria included presentation with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or the initiation of milrinone or dobutamine prior to ICU transfer. The primary outcome evaluated was a composite of in-hospital, all-cause death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, receipt of MCS or cardiac transplant, non-fatal MI, TIA, or stroke, or initiation of renal replacement therapy. 319 patients were screened, and ultimately 192 were enrolled, and all the outcomes were limited to the index hospitalization. So for an idea of who was ultimately included, the average age was about 71 years old, 35% were female, and 86% were of white race. As for their heart failure and shock, two-thirds had ischemic cardiomyopathy with a median EF overall in the trial of 25%, and most, or 80%, had classic C category of cardiogenic shock. About 10% had pulmonary artery catheters placed at baseline. And the results of the Do-Re-Mi trial were published in August 5th issue of New England Journal of Medicine. The study investigators reported that during that index hospitalization, the primary composite endpoint occurred in 49% of patients on milrinone compared to 54% on dobutamine, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.69 to 1.19 and a p-value of 0.47. There was also no difference in any of the pre-specified secondary endpoints, which included the individual components of the primary endpoint, as well as other potentially important metrics such as ICU length of stay, normalization of lactate level, or arrhythmias requiring intervention. So the authors concluded that there was no significant differences in cardiovascular or renal outcomes between intravenous milrinone and dobutamine. So, Michael, let's start from the very beginning. Yeah, milrinone and dobutamine, this conversation has been going on for decades now, and I think that there's never really been a consensus about which is the superior drug, and it it often comes down to provider preference. (laughs) But dobutamine tends to be the the quicker acting of the two drugs as a, a really rapid onset of about a minute, quick offset as well. Comparatively, milrinone is a longer half-life, much longer acting, um, takes several minutes to see some level of effect, 
And then depending on a patient's renal function, it, it could last for hours. So that is kind of the, the niche that the two play. Historically too, there's been this uh, thought that dibutamine tends to be more um, arrhythmia provoking. Several small cohort studies have shown um, higher incidences of tachyarrhythmia, specifically sinus tachycardia, as well as atrial um, dysrhythmias. Whereas milrinone has historically been thought of the one that causes hypotension, right? It's a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor. It affects the peripheral vasculature to a greater degree than most people think with dibutamine. However, that's not always the case. <laughs> um, so dibutamine's action of being a, a beta agonist, both on beta 1 and beta 2 receptors, lends it to itself to causing some hypotension as well. Um, so those are kind of like the historical kinetics and, and what providers' thoughts on the drugs have been over the past couple of decades. So Michael, I think that was great background on where we're currently at with the use of dobutamine and milrinone. Related to the patients included in this study, I just want to give folks a little bit more information about the SCAI shock stages. The majority of the patients, 80%, were classic or stage C. And that's hypoperfusion, but without evidence of deterioration. So they have some type of end organ damage starting to be evident and obviously hypotension, but not with a lot of deterioration. And only about 10% of the people had deterioration. However, these are still much more stable than maybe the patient we think about from the Optime CHF trial, where milrinone really showed no role. Um, those patients had no evidence of shock. And so this is really in those patients where we think of inotropes as a necessary evil, if you will, certainly some downsides and drawbacks to using them in patients with low ejection fractions, but we really don't have a whole lot of other therapies to offer the patients. And so I think this trial really came as a welcome comparison of two therapies that are um, highly controversial and very polarizing on which one to use and when. So give us your thoughts on the overall Do-Re-Mi trial, if you will. Yeah. So I, I think that when I first read this trial, I was expecting much more and I was a, a little bit disappointed in, in what I ultimately read. Um, it's, a, it's a small study. It's a single center tertiary care, but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't help us pick one of these agents. I think it does challenge the historical beliefs that, you know, milrinone is associated with more hypotension and dibutamine is associated with more dysrhythmias. There was no difference in those secondary outcomes when looking at this, these patients in, in this population. Um, I think that these patients, you know, were, um, like we said prior, they were mostly SCAI class C. So these are your classic cardiogenic shock patients. Um, however, they aren't the sickest of population either. So in, if you look at the baseline characteristics, only about 7% of them were actually requiring any level of respiratory support, whether it be um, non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. And so from, a, from my standpoint in my practice, I normally see the, the D and E's. And so these patients don't fit into my categories necessarily, um, but they were still cardiogenic shock and they had evidence of malperfusion requiring some level of, me of medical support. Um, some things that I think were really interesting about this trial is that one, the time to randomization was rather long from onset of cardiogenic shock. So it's about 17 to 24 hours um, from time of ICU admission to randomization to this trial. So they were pretty early on in their course of cardiogenic shock. And we know that there is this critical time period when these patients present, especially with acute myocardial infarctions, where uh, treatment is really needed early on to prevent 
worsening and, and, and progressing into those stage D and E where you're actually seeing harm to uh, organs. A couple of other things that I think I'm a, a big statistical snob and the power calculation to me is quite interesting. Um, so they assumed essentially that there was going to be a 20% difference in the effect of milrinone and dibunamine favoring milrinone. And, and I'm not sure exactly where they, they thought that that large of an effect would be seen between these two drugs. Um, historically, um, you know, guidelines, they don't make any recommendation about whether milrinone or dibunamine is preferred. And there's really never any mention in any of the guidelines of about even what patients to select them in. And then all we have is these small, usually single center studies, observational cohorts where they're comparing the two drugs. And there's never been shown to be this large of an effect difference between the two. And so because of that, when they chose such a large difference in effect size, you are allowed to, or you're able to enroll a smaller sample size to actually find a difference. And so when I look at this study, I, I think that it was probably underpowered really to detect the small differences that may exist actually between milrinone and dibutamine. And then along those lines as well, there, there's this large primary composite outcome that is chosen interestingly, I would say. You know, I think the important things would be you know, in-hospital mortality, um, need for mechanical support or heart transplantation or progression to renal failure or liver failure. Those are important outcomes that are of interest. However, I would never think that milrinone would be better than dibunamine at reducing the incidence of um, transient ischemic attacks or strokes or um, even you know, myocardial infarctions at this point. So I, I think that there was probably some statistical anomalies too that needed to be addressed. And, and I think the study is useful in that we can see that, you know, maybe they're more similar than we think, but we probably need to have a much larger study to find these small differences that may exist between the two drugs. Well, Michael, I think that was a great overview of the overall trial. And, you know, there are always a few questions that are left with us. I think one of the, the really um, potentially important questions is when we look at subgroup analysis, which are always hypothesis generating at best. And I think overall from the big trial, we see most of the subgroups have a similar overall outcome, but almost at the exact same time as this trial was published, they published two full subgroup analyses of the Do-Re-Mi trial. And I'd like to focus in on the one that was the impact of baseline beta blocker use and just get your opinion on how beta blocker use at baseline affected the, the overall study of Do-Re-Mi. I'm really glad that they published this because this was one of the major questions that I had when I first started reading this trial. And, and you look at it and in the subgroup analysis, they demonstrate that 48% of patients in the total cohort were on uh, beta blockade prior to admission for this cardiogenic shock episode. And, um, and when you look at these patients that it, it actually makes a difference when you're on beta blockade, we have historical literature suggesting that there's variable differences in dibutamine and milrinone effect um, when you have baseline beta blockade on. The trial coordinators did not explicitly say whether or not they stopped it, but in their methodology, it looks like they, they describe a, an effect that lasts 48 hours. And so it seems like they stopped the beta blockers at time of admission, suggesting that these were true cardiogenic shock patients. And, and there's a high level of vasopressor use um, upwards of 40 to 50% in both beta blockers and non-beta blocker groups. So they probably were rather hemodynamically unstable. Interestingly, I think the most important thing is understanding which beta blockers they were on and how that could potentially impact uh, milrinone or dibutamine efficacy. So when you look 
and break this down a little bit, the large majority of the patients were on beta-1 selective agents, either metoprolol, succinate, or bisoprolol on admission. And only 6% of the patients were on carvedilol. Um, so this is a largely beta-1 selective population. And if you look at the hemodynamic studies with dibutamine and milrinone, there is a suggestion that dibutamine's effects are potentially maintained when you have a beta-1 selective beta blocker on prior and milrinones as well. However, when you have a mixed beta blocker like carvedilol with alpha activity and beta activity, um, dibutamine's effects are uh, diminished. And so I think that's important here. And, and you look at this subgroup analysis and, it, and ultimately they're looking at similar outcomes as they did in the, in the main study. And they find that there's this potentially early benefit of beta blockade in these patients within the first 48 hours. There was a decrease in mortality and a decrease in resuscitated cardiac arrest. But when they extended this trial out and they looked at, you know, longer term outcomes, that uh, benefit did not persist. And so there might be some beneficial effects of home beta blockade. And they also look at hemodynamics. While there weren't that many patients with swans in the trial, they seem to be preserved whether you were on dibutamine or milrinone. I think a lot of this comes down though to, they stopped the beta blockers, that's one. Um, and then two, they were mostly on beta one selective agents. And so um, the effect of dimutamine probably was preserved in these patients. So Michael, given everything we've discussed, I'd love to know how this affects your management of your patients today. You know, I, I don't think it changes my perception of the drugs necessarily. Um, you know, I, I think that it, solidifies that either drug can be used. And it really just depends on um, the patient that you're treating and then the parameters that they're showing you. Um, you know, I, we still know the pharmacokinetics, the drugs are different. Dibutamine is quicker on and quicker off. It does not have any renal elimination. And so in a patient with severe renal dysfunction, it might be more appropriate to use dibutamine in that case. Whereas somebody that has severe pulmonary hypertension, milrinone might be a better choice because we know that the phosphodiesterase 3 inhibition is a really good vasodilator as well. And, and it'll be more beneficial for somebody with RV failure and, and pulmonary hypertension. So, you know, I still have these niches in my mind where these drugs fit. And this trial just kind of shows that, you know, those historical perspectives of the differences in the dysrhythmias and the hypotension aren't necessarily true. Both of these can be used to um, the same effect. They just need to be thoughtfully chosen for each patient. And I, I think, you know, a study like this that's randomized and has a pretty generalized population of cardiogenic shock, it helps us say like, it's okay if we choose one or the other, there's not a right answer. You know, a lot of people have long thought that milrinone was the, the answer, um, was the better drug. And it, it, there still may be minute details. And we talked about the, the sample size calculation, but I, I don't think it's enough to say that should be the preferential drug. There are niches for both. And I think they, and it can be used uh, in those niches specifically. You know, I think you're, you're right on that without a favorable result for either entity here, there's not a whole lot to change our practice, but I think it's worth mentioning that I think we'll have a lot of pressure in most of our organizations that if clinical outcomes look similar, we usually have to defer to the cheaper of the agents. So if you're pushed to say that efficacy is so similar, what is your response to why we wouldn't just use dobutamine then at a lower cost? I was actually just looking this up the other day because I was interested to see what the changes in the wholesale price have been over time. And it's about 15 to $17 a day with milrinone. And it, you're right. It's about a dollar a day for dibutamine. And I actually sit on a system formulary management committee as well. And so this always comes into play with various drugs. 
Um, but if efficacy is similar, I think that a lot of people will see that and they'll, and they'll lean on that, but there's always going to be a patient that known still will have a role in, and, you know, the patients with pulmonary hypertension, the patients that are on baseline carvedilol. And so there has to be a method, whether it's restricting its use slightly or, or something, there has to be a way that we can still use milrinone in practice. Because in reality, the cost difference is there, but it's not something that's like isoproteranol that is $1,000 a day versus $17 versus a dollar. So, you know, in reality, we have to think these things through and, and, and know that while efficacy might be similar in a large randomized controlled trial, this isn't every patient. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think in the end, a lot of us will be left with still just as many questions as answers based on the findings of the Do-Re-Mi trial, and also just hopeful and looking forward to the future where maybe we find out what the best thing is to do for these patients when the next comparison comes with Do-Re-Mi 2, which has a placebo arm, as well as maybe looking into further analysis and evaluation of temporary mechanical circulatory support of which case at that time, I'll be sure to have you back on CardioScripts to give us your, your expertise on those findings. On behalf of Liz and Nathan and I, we really want to thank you for being on CardioScripts and thank all of you for listening. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at cardioscripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.